First Peter chapter 5 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you've been intending for any amount of time, you realize we've been studying through the book of First Peter. Um, we're nearing the end, chapter 5. And so this is the letter from the Apostle Peter to believers who were displaced. They were suffering persecution, all because they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And with that came opposition. If you haven't caught the overall theme of 1 Peter, this is it. The letter was written to help believers understand how to save their life on earth for eternity. In other words, Peter tells them how to live your life on earth in such a way that it brings glory to God, but it also reaps eternal reward and eternal significance one day. Uh, Dave Anderson is the president of Grace School of Theology out there in the, in the woodlands. He wrote uh, a commentary on 1 Peter, um, a, a book on 1 Peter, kind of a commentary, but I use it a lot in my own preparation as well as other resources. But he entitled the book, Saving the Saved, because that's what 1 Peter is about. It's about, you know, we're saved and we're going to heaven, but there's still a whole lot of saving of our life that needs to happen here and now. Because we still are prone to wander. We still are, are uh, tempted to waste our life on meaningless things. And so saving the saved is what this letter's about. You know, really, it's, it's no small question to ask yourself, am I saving my life today for eternity, for eternal significance on earth? You know, we're actually talking about the meaning of life. <laughs> Just to be honest, this is the meaning of our existence. It's no small thing. God's created us. He gave us life and breath in our lungs. He redeemed us, gave us eternal life. He didn't redeem just our, our souls, but he redeemed our lives to live it on purpose, right? For his purpose. And I think only when we come to understand that foundational and transcendent purpose for our life, will we ever hope to experience the joy and the peace and the significance that comes from living life on purpose? But therein lies the key, doesn't it? Uh, understanding. Do you have understanding regarding these things? One commentator said, gain in understanding or loss in understanding depends on how one responds to the truth made available. Think about that. If we respond in our hearts to the truth of the Bible in faith, we believe it, then God will provide more understanding for us. He'll light our path even more. Or we can dismiss it and say, yeah, that's great, but maybe not for me. It doesn't apply to me, not, not for my life. Then I think we hinder our own ability to understand more. You know, I think there are uh, several barriers to people hearing and understanding the truth of the Bible, uh, as you read through the New Testament especially, but you see that the Bible says that we all struggle with three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, seen throughout. Uh, oftentimes, in our own sinful nature, nature, talking about the flesh, our own, our own sinful nature we tend to stiff-arm God's truth in our lives. We are resistant to it at times because 
Maybe we don't understand it. Maybe we're unwilling to understand it. Maybe we just don't care to understand it. I think the reason it's taken me so long to understand certain truths in my life over the, over the course of my life is because I was resistant to it for so long. My heart wasn't open to receive it. I didn't want God's plan for my life. I didn't, I didn't want God to uh, intervene in my life, so to speak. And You know, that was the flesh. Me chasing what I thought I wanted, my own desires. God, I know you've got something, and I know what your word is, says is true, but I have other plans. I think the world is also a major obstacle to all of us receiving the truth of God, to understand it. The message of the Bible is in opposition to the message of the world, isn't it? When you look at the world, the unbelieving world, and what they pursue and what their life's about and how they go about their lives, it's in direct contrast to what God says He's created us for and the way and the path that He wants us to, to walk. So if, as a believer even, if I'm immersed in the world and the world's way of thinking from, from whatever source, wherever I'm spending my time, it's transforming my thinking to the pattern of the world, then when truth is shared with me that challenges my thinking, my way of life that I've ad adapted from the world, then I'm going to be resistant to that, right? And then there's the devil, our adversary. Satan is a, a very real being who constantly works to undermine, to twist, and to steal away truth from people, both from believers and unbelievers. Satan is, is Lucifer, which means shining star. If you know who Satan is, he was the highest, most beautiful archangel of God at one time. But as, because of his pride, because of his rebellion against God, he was thrown from heaven, cast out of heaven, along with a third of the angels that rebelled with him. And so Lucifer, uh, along with his legion of fallen angels, army of fallen angels. These are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in, in the heavenly places that we see in Ephesians 6. This is what we're up against today as Christians. To give us just an idea of how many, you ever wonder how many fallen angels, uh, demonic forces are out there in our world today. I, we don't really know for sure, but a third of the angels, we're told, rebelled with Satan and God cast them all out. But just to give us an idea of maybe how many are at work, I think Revelation 19 refers to an army of angels that were, are released during the tribulation period to kill a third of the people on earth at the time. This is still yet future. And if these are, in fact, fallen angels, the verse says that 200 million angels will be loosed. It actually calls them mounted troops. And so Satan, along with his however many millions of evil minions, are at work today as an organized spiritual military force to oppose God to oppose God's plan and oppose God's people. I share all that 
to begin to, to help us understand what we are up against. Satan is a formidable enemy, and it's crucial that we understand that. He is not somebody that we mock, is not somebody that we ignore or underestimate. If for any other reason, then nowhere else in the Bible do you find people doing that. In fact, you see the opposite when you read the Bible. Did you know that every New Testament author makes mention of Satan? And Jesus specifically mentions him 25 times throughout the New Testament. So if all the New Testament authors and, and Jesus himself talk about Satan, why would we think that he's no longer working today? Why would we think he's someone that we should just ignore and not understand how he works? Because the truth is that Satan is a very relevant spiritual force today. He is a spiritual being at work today. And we'd be wise to have a balanced view and, and understanding of how he works in our world. In the classic parable, the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis warned that there were two extreme errors into which our race can fall regarding the, the devil and his demons. He says one extreme is to have an unhealthy interest in them. And you probably all know someone that's like that. An unhealthy interest in the demonic. And the other extreme is to disbelieve their existence. But then Lewis wrote that the demonic world actually delights in both extremes. You give too much attention or you give too little. They're happy with either because it's not a balanced understanding of our adversary. That's what the next couple weeks are about. Having a, a biblical and a balanced view of our adversary, the devil. Who is Satan? What's he up to in the world? We might be able to point to that more readily. What, but more importantly, what's, what's he up to in your life? What's he up to in your church? And we see from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, the first thing that Satan is out for is our ruin. Look there at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Let's uh, back up just a, a bit. Let's, let's start with verse 6 and let's just read through verse 9. Peter tells these believers, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Father, I want to just come and, and just uh, plead for your help here this morning. Anytime that we open up your word, there's always opposition. And we understand that anytime we engage in spiritual ministry, we realize that there are forces at work um, to distract us, to keep us from understanding and so we just pray for your divine help. I, I pray actually in the next uh, 30 minutes or so, Lord, you would um, 
keep the evil one from our, our time here today. I, I hope that's a prayer that I have from my heart. I, I pray that's a, a prayer for everyone here that, that they also are saying, Lord, please help me to, to listen today, to, to understand so that I can have more understanding about your plan for my life and how that's being opposed. And so we need grace. We need help. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, our ruin, Peter says, can happen. I'm going to start with the latter part of verse 8 where he says, Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter's written most of this letter to help these believers follow Jesus in their life. He's telling them how to respond to, to the hostile world around them. He's telling them how to respond to, to government, governing authorities. He's telling them how to respond in marriage to your spouse, uh, to other believers in the church, to, to even church leaders we recently talked about. How do you respond to them? How do, how do you make your life count for eternity has is, is been kind of the overall theme so far. But now as we near the end of his letter, he tells them that there's going to be an adversary who's going to oppose you on every front. All of these fronts, you're going to encounter opposition. Because that's what Satan does. He opposes. That's why he calls, Peter calls him the adversary, the devil. You know, the word devil means false accuser or slanderer. Think about that. Falsely accuses you, slanders you, the people of God. And I think that gives us some insight into his tactics in our life. And so Peter says, hey, your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I think the Greek word just means to swallow up. Well, what did he mean when he said that he prowls around seeking someone to devour? Well, the word devour simply means to, to completely destroy to cause the complete and sudden destruction of someone or something to destroy, to ruin completely. That is his objective, looking for someone who he can completely destroy. Isn't that a wonderful thought? <laughs> Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, he told his disciples, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What a contrast, right? Jesus came to give us abundant life that our, our joy may be full, but Satan is out to utterly destroy life. And for the sake of time and, and focus, I just really want to zoom in on, on what the devil seeks to destroy in the lives of us as believers that, that leads to the total destruction of our life. And the first thing that comes to mind is our faith. Satan wants to destroy our faith. Because faith in Jesus Christ is, is the core of Christianity. Because not only are people eternally saved by faith in Jesus, but we also live the, the remainder of our lives on earth by faith in Jesus. Faith is up to us. Faith is up to us. Uh, 
if we lose faith or we don't grow in our faith, then our lives will have very little impact on our world and the advancement of, of God's plan for the ages, for His people. But if we have faith and we grow in faith, we respond in faith, we get to be part of the work of God and His plan for the ages. I want to share just a quick point about faith that I think a lot in our evangelical world misunderstand uh, regarding this. This, this might be a surprise to some of you. Faith is not a gift from God. It's not a gift from God. I think I've heard that so many times that God grants faith as a gift for you to believe. God, give me the faith, we pray. Uh, faith is up to us. It's, it's not a gift. Now, there is a spiritual gift of faith that we see in the Bible, but that's a spiritual gift. We're not talking about just believing, choosing to believe in God or in the Word of God. So if we sit around and wait for, for or even pray for more faith to start, God, give me the faith to start living for you. Well, I'm not sure it really happens that way. Faith is up to us. God created us as free beings. We have a free will. We have the capacity for faith. God designed us that way, and so in a sense, it's, it is from God. But Romans tells us that faith comes from hearing of the Word of God. And so when God speaks through His Word, when you open the Bible, the hearers have the responsibility to respond in faith, right? That's, that's our responsibility. They either believe it or they reject it. God doesn't force someone to believe in Him. God doesn't force us to believe what He says is true. And so naturally then the devil seeks to hinder our faith, doesn't he? Our faith in God, our, our, our faith in the goodness of God. Jesus told a, a parable that illustrates this truth in Matthew chapter 13 called the parable of the sower. If you want to turn there briefly with me, Matthew chapter 13, I'll have it on the screen as well though, but just want to look at verses 3 through 9. It's the parable of the sower, you're probably familiar with this, but it's, it's about this very topic. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, this parable, as, as Jesus would later explain, represents a person's response to the truth of the Word of God. The soils are the heart of people. And in this context, particularly the message of the kingdom. But the seed is the word. It's the word of God. And the soil is the heart of the hearer. But you notice in verse 4 that some seed fell along the path, but it says the birds came and devoured them. I think it's an interesting use of the word, devour. Especially in light of what we're studying here this morning. Who might want to devour something? I believe the birds is a reference to the work of Satan in snatching away the truth from an unbeliever's heart. 
If Satan can snatch away the seed before anyone has an opportunity to believe, then he's accomplished his task. That's what he's out to do. I uh, was getting my car washed a couple months ago, my truck washed a couple months ago, and um, it takes an eternity outside Burleson, Washington Loop. Anyway, but as I'm sitting outside waiting, you know, this young man came and sat next to me, and we just struck up a conversation, and uh, just finding out, he was asking me questions, you know, about, you know, where I live or where I work. We're just talking. And uh, the subject came up, uh, you know, I asked him, hey, do you go to church anywhere? you worship anywhere? Or, you know, and he started to talk about that. And we started getting a, a good conversation about faith. And, you know, he hasn't really been in church in a while, but he grew up in church, you know. And, and uh, just as we're getting to the gospel, your car's ready, sir. Not to me. To the guy I was talking to. Hmm. What a coincidence right? I don't think so. And I think preemptive strikes are one of Satan's greatest weapons. Preemptive. It's one of his taxes, tactics. It's effective, isn't it? You think about the times that people are distracted by other things that prevent them from actually hearing the gospel or maybe Maybe uh, it gets eaten up, it's planted, a seed's planted, but what happens? Other things happen, distraction, the truth is snatched away from an unbeliever. Uh, you know, I don't know if this statistic is accurate, but I, I remember once hearing that there's maybe as many as 21 different people involved in a person's life and planting seeds of truth before they actually come to believe in Jesus. Why does it take so many people, so many opportunities for a person to come to know Jesus. Why? Because this is one of the adversary's greatest, most effective tactics. Snatch it away. Right? I think uh, of just how Satan has done that in the lives of so many people that uh, I've encountered over the years. There could be a lot of reasons why Someone doesn't believe in the gospel, but we need to understand that Satan is actively working to snatch away the truth before someone can consider it. Even in a church service like this, I think Satan is actively trying to hinder people from tuning in, from understanding what the gospel really is, from believing even. Maybe he uses distraction techniques. Maybe he tells lies to a person. You don't need to hear this. You know, whatever's, whatever's being said is not true. I imagine many times Satan just maybe keeps people away from even being here. Whatever his tactic, be certain, wherever the gospel is presented... Satan is actively opposing it. We need to understand that. That's why every Sunday uh, we try to gather some elders, some other men in the church to come pray. We're out here praying in the, in the office. God, this is spiritual warfare that we're engaging in here this morning. We need to pray. Open the hearts and minds. Help us. Let's help us communicate 
accurately. Keep Satan away from the work that you want to do here today. Jairus also takes the worship team and he prays and they have a similar prayer. God, help us. Because we realize it's a spiritual battlefield. And so he tries to rob people of their faith. But he also wants to rob believers of our joy. Our joy. With all the passages in the Bible that speak of the joy of the Lord, the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, the the joy of knowing Jesus and walking with Him, it sure seems like joy in the Christian life is more uncommon than it is common today. Where's the joy in a believer's life today? Last week we looked at Peter's encouragement of these believers. He says to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because they were a stressed out group of believers. I imagine they probably had all kinds of anxieties and cares as a a group of of young believers who realize, uh uh-oh, It's not really all that fun sometimes to walk with Jesus. There's persecution. People don't like us now. And so Peter understood then, as we understand now, real joy comes from the person of Jesus Christ. That's the joy of the Lord. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you, he says, and that your joy may be full. You see the connection? Jesus said that that's the way to to true joy. It was the joy of the Lord that would make their joy full. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that your experience, Christian? Joy comes from knowing and walking closely with Jesus Christ through our life. It's really just called being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And that's one distinction our church church makes that many others don't seem to make, is that being a believer in Jesus and being a follower of Jesus aren't always the same thing. They're not always the same thing. The devil's strategy is to first snatch away the truth before a person can believe it for themselves. And if he's not successful at that, then he's going to change his strategy to try and lead believers away from following Jesus with their life. Because Christians are not necessarily a threat unless they take their faith seriously. And so the, the moment you decide to get serious about your walk with Jesus, guess what? Here come the attacks. Have you experienced that? You determine to make changes or you determine to, to live more fully for, for the Lord or to confess sin and to get on the right track, whatever it may be. As soon as that happens, guess what? Boom, here come the attacks. Think about this for a moment. How many times have you left a, a, maybe a Christian conference or a church service or, or, or reading a, a Christian book that's challenged you to pursue Jesus more passionately in your life? And then once you get home, maybe even once you get in a car, 
what happens? Once you finish the book, once you go back to life as normal the next day, what happens? Oh, it's easy. Yeah. I mean, you know God spoke to you in that moment. You know God was calling you to a deeper faith in Him. He's inviting you to be part of what He's doing in the world. That your life would have meaning in serving Him more. So, what happened then? Why did the wheels fall off? Why, why do we so quickly revert back to, well, I guess I'll just go back to my life. <laughs> why is that? Are we just weak? Are we just lazy? Maybe we don't have enough discipline. That's what it is. I'm just not disciplined enough to carry out what God's told my, my heart to do, what I really long to do. Maybe, maybe that's part of it. I'm certainly lazy on some days. I'm weak many days. But I really tend to think there's a whole lot more going on behind the scenes than meets the eye. Maybe what's happened is the same thing that happened to the believers at Corinth. Because Corinth was the model church. Just kidding. Corinth was a little dysfunctional. They had a lot of issues. Why? Why is that? Why do they deal with so much? At one time in their life, you think about it, this church in Corinth, at one time, we know that they just lived in ignorance of the truth. They didn't know Jesus. They, they were living in rebellion against God. But then they put their faith in Jesus. And, and a church was started. And Christians started gathering, started worshiping. And by the time, though, that Paul got word about how things were going in the church at Corinth, he realized they were fighting amongst themselves. They were tolerating open sin in their church. They were putting up with false teachers in the church. And they were even critical of Paul and the other apostles. And it's like, what, what's going on in this church? Wow. How does a group of believers who at one time were excited about Jesus, excited about living for the Lord, their lives were radically changed by Jesus Christ, how is it that they then become this people who, who worship and glory of God is the last thing on their mind in their worship service for some reason? Paul had an idea. He said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning or his craftiness, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Satan is a deceiver. The very first lie he told way back in the Garden of Eden was deception, wasn't it? And he's found out, this tactic works pretty good. I'm going to just stick with that. And he's wreaked havoc ever since. And he said it was the devil, through, through his craftiness, or li literally trick, trickery, li is leading believers astray in their thinking about Jesus, about, about the uh, sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, that's what he's up to. And in Corinth, it was through the influence of some false teachers primarily, bringing in some false teaching that would also lead them astray. But he's still up to those same schemes today, isn't he? He still absolutely is at work in this way. Whatever lie he can sell someone to, to, to doubt God, to doubt the truth of God, you know, God said that, but, you know, did he really say that? 
Is it really that important? Whatever scheme, trickery that he can, can employ, deploy in our lives to prevent us, lead us astray from the truth about Jesus, about God's word, he's going to do it. It worked in the beginning, it still is working here thousands of years later. You remember that Psalm 16 I just shared? He says, you will show me, God, the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think that's alluding to future, but it's also true today. God, God's shown us the path to the abundant life in the Bible, we know what God has said about how to experience life and life to the full that Jesus came to offer. It's there. We've experienced the joy that comes from being in the presence of God, have you not? Here this morning in your personal devotion time, maybe throughout your, your week as you fellowship with God, you experience His presence. You know the pleasures are at the Lord's right hand now and forever. But there is now, and as long as we live on this earth, there will be an adversary who wants to steal our joy away. We need to be aware of that. And then finally this morning, there's uh, the rewards that he wants to steal. Our rewards. Uh, a truth that's prevalent throughout the Bible, but is probably one of the least talked about truths in churches today, is, is the subject of rewards, specifically eternal rewards. We don't talk a lot about that, though I think we should. You know that God is a rewarder? God loves to reward His people. Have you ever received a reward for something? Maybe for a, a job well done or uh, something that, you've, that you did that was rewarded. Isn't that a great feeling? To be rewarded. To be recognized and rewarded for something that you've done. Uh, my oldest son, Zach, this is when he got his first car. It's hard to see that. We need to upgrade this screen. No, anyway, the projector. Well, my son had hair back then. He doesn't have hair now. He's 30. But I remember when we, I helped, we helped him get this first car. But he was doing great in school. He was working hard, getting good grades. He was working the old steak and shake, making his own money. Not enough to afford a car, but we want, man, I want to help. I want to reward my son. Because I just take great pleasure and joy in rewarding my kids. I love my children. And when they're doing things that are deserving of reward and recognition, I want to do that. I'd love to do it. Sometimes we give our kids stuff for no reason at all, and that may be okay too. Don't do that too much. That's called spoiling your child, but that's for grandparents. Amen? Okay, all right, there we go. Uh, but I, I was just so pleased with my son, how well he was doing. He ended up getting an academic scholarship to college. He's doing well. He, he's just risen to the top every place he's ever worked. He's just a good man. And I wanted to reward him. And it was so much fun and joy to do that. Because I love him. He's my child. I want to reward him. I look for ways to reward him. He's a little old for that now. But I want him to succeed. I want them to experience the joy 
and all that God has planned for their lives, all my kids. But you think about it, if I, as an imperfect human, as sinful as I am, only want good things for my children, how much more does God want for me and you today as His children? As a, as a perfect heavenly Father, God wants to give us all good things. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? And I understand that gifts and rewards are, are different things. The principle is the same. God is just always ready to, to bless and to give. But He rewards. He's ready to reward us. Apparently, God hasn't bought into the modern philosophy that everyone gets a trophy. No matter if you do anything or not, that's, that's today, isn't it? You just show up. Hey, congratulations, you showed up. But if everyone gets a trophy, whether they've earned it or not, well, then the reward has lost its value, has it not? It's meaningless. But God stands ready to reward His children when they please Him. He even tells us how to be rewarded in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So therein lies the key to both pleasing God and earning rewards from, from God. It's faith. The text doesn't even say that Anyone who comes to God and, and serves their tail off or anyone who comes to God and, and attends church regularly or gives money or even does good works will please Him and receive reward. I think He does it at times. But it just says if you, if you come to God in faith and just believe that He exists, that, that He is here, He is observing my life, He is involved in, in my life, that God does exist. That God will come through on His promise to reward. Isn't that what it says? If you believe that He's a rewarder, He'll reward you. The rewards come then when we earnestly or diligently seek Him. Seek Him. We're actively seeking God in, in our lives. I want to know God more. I want to see God working in my life more. I can't get enough. And so I want to pursue Him. I want to actively seek Him because I want to please God. I'm looking for ways to obey Him, to obey His Word. God, what are, you, what are you showing me? What do you want me to do? I'm ready. That's, I think, what God seeks to reward. I told my wife the other day, um, just thinking about, I'm, try, I'm trying to develop a heart of gratitude you may think that it's easy to be grateful for all the things that God has done. I don't think so. I think that's another way that Satan may try to oppose us is to always think of the things that go wrong and the bad things and to focus on those, right? So I'm trying to develop this heart of, of gratitude, but just reflecting on all that God's done and is doing in our lives, I think, you know, we're more than blessed. We're actually spoiled by God. <laughs> I don't know if you ever feel that way. It's like, God, what are you, you're just blessing my life so much and you're blessing my marriage, and, and you're blessing the church, and you're, you're blessing my children, and 
the, the blessings just, they just overflow in my life. And, you know, I've always, I try to always be careful uh, in giving God the praise and the glory. I, just grat- gratitude for God for the things that he's done. I just always want to recognize the work of God. But rarely, if ever, do I think to myself, God is blessing my faithfulness. Because that kind of sounds arrogant, doesn't it? But isn't that exactly what Hebrews says? That I must believe in order to receive the rewards from God. He rewards me as I earnestly seek Him. It's okay to see blessings from God in life as a reward for faithfulness. I think that's okay. But God doesn't just reward us in this life. He rewards us in eternity as well. We've talked a lot about this through our study. But one day we all stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be rewarded for living our life for Christ. For passionately seeking the Lord and the things of God. To seeking those things that are above. To to seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. There are rewards for faithfully following Jesus in your life, especially when it's tough. There's rewards for enduring persecution, rewards for suffering for Jesus, and the list goes on. So when you think about your life, you consider that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Keep in mind that there's also an enemy who loves to steal rewards. He doesn't want you to experience that in your life. You know, Revelation 3.11 says, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Wait, that's a reality? That's a possibility? Absolutely it is. In other words, keep trusting Jesus in your life. Keep following Him in your life. Keep on believing that God is at work in your life and in your circumstance, in your situation, in your family. He's keeping account of every act of faith you ever accomplish. And don't let Satan steal your reward. Don't allow him to rob you of those rewards by his lies and his deception, his deceit. I know this is a lot that we shared this morning. and I think you have rewards just for enduring the sermon, if we're honest. Anyway, hey, there we go, except for that guy. No, I'm just kidding. But how do we respond? And this is just a, a brief statement here. Two ways that Peter says, the first part of this verse, he says, guys, be sober-minded and be watchful or be vigilant. Both are imperatives in the Greek. An imperative means, this is a command. You must do this if you don't want to be devil's food cake. Sober-minded means to be in control of one's thought process and thus not be in danger of irrational thinking. Sober-minded, clear-minded. In other words, it's irrational to think that the devil doesn't exist and he's not your enemy. Oh, he may attack pastors, and I'm sure I've heard stories about him attacking missionaries, but he's not bothering with little old me, right? Peter says, hey guys, sober up and start thinking clearly because danger is lurking. 
the enemy is real. His desire is to seek, kill, and destroy, to steal, kill, and destroy what God has offered through Jesus, what he's made available to you. And so once we wake up to the reality that, oh, we are in a spiritual battle for our lives, for eternal significance, not our eternal security, I'm going to make sure you understand that. Once you believe in Jesus, heaven is assured for all of us who believe in him. Amen? You can't lose it. But the eternal significance, the eternal reward of our lives can definitely be stolen away. And then he says, if that's true, and it is, and you're sobering up to the fact that this is, this is reality, then be watchful or be vigilant. It just means to keep your eyes open. But figuratively, it means to stay alert and watchful spiritually. Just because Jesus cares for you, right? Pete just said, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Just because Jesus cares for you doesn't mean that you can be careless. Just because Jesus cares about us doesn't mean we get to coast. Put it in neutral in our Christian life. No time to, to snooze in some spiritual backyard hammock. We're in a war and there's a lion on the loose. That's what Peter tells to these believers. And so, believers, let's be watchful. Let's be sober-minded. Let's not have an imbalanced view. Let's not leave here today and, and be on the lookout for where Satan's at work. Don't focus on Satan. But also, don't dismiss it. Don't walk out here and say, oh, that was nice, and then get back in your car and go back to your life and never thinking about it again. I think a good approach would be, let's go out here today, and let's passionately follow Jesus, and let's look for him blessing our life by our faithfulness, because he promised to do that. But be aware you will be opposed as soon as you start to do it. Start looking at the little things in your life that Satan might be drawing you away to do. What, what is a joy killer? Uh, maybe anger. Maybe resentment. Maybe, maybe bitterness. Something's going to happen. My internet just went out last night. Is that a blessing or a curse? I don't know. But it can be a frustration, right? My wife works from home. My oldest son works from home. Can't work. We don't have internet. So what's he want to do? He... He wants to make sure that I get upset, that we get frustrated, that we, our focus, our attention is all on this situa situation, this circumstance, and our joy is stolen, right? It's going to be something. You, something's going to happen in your marriage. Count on it, right? She's going to say, hey, where do you want to go to eat, husband? And you're going to say, let's go here. And she's going to say, no, I don't want that. And you're going to go back and forth for 20 minutes to figure out where to eat. And you're going to get an argument. No, I'm kidding. You never know how he's going to draw us in to lead us away from pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So be vigilant. Be sober-minded. Father, thank you for this morning and, and just the time that we've had to 
study, to look to your word, to understand our enemy. He is our adversary. He wants to rob us. But it's because he hates you and he hates everything that you want to do in this world. Help us to be wise to his schemes. Help us to be alert. To be vigilant. Because we want to experience the joy that comes from following you. Help us to draw close to you, to seek you diligently so that our joy may be full, the rewards, the blessings will flow, and the advancement of the gospel and the work that you're doing in Burleson and in the world will continue. Thank you, God, for this truth. We ask for divine help. We need you, Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.